Welcome to Mnemonic, a podcast about memory. My name is Ryan Trussell. I'm a writer and a father. And each week I'll tell you a story about my life, threading connections between the past and the present moment, finding resonances that often even surprise me. Just a quick note. Uh, These are autobiographical stories that involve people other than myself. I've done my best to protect the identities of those I could without sacrificing clarity in the stories. And in all cases, I've done my level best to make sure the people who aren't me come out looking the best they can. So if you see yourself in any of these stories, please keep that in mind, and I hope that you understand. All right, thank you very much. Episode 13, Caroline from Connecticut. We had met the one semester we both attended UMass Boston and fallen in love. Her name was Caroline from Bethany, Connecticut, and she had mousy brown hair always kept in a single braid and wore glasses, although she would often forget them and stagger around half blind. After she transferred to Connecticut State and moved back home, I spent a lot of time traveling to Bethany to spend time with her and her family. Her mother was superintendent at a small school district, and I was always working hard to try and impress her because I wanted to be a teacher someday. Her dad played guitar, and we would sometimes jam together in their basement. She had a younger sister who never had a name. No one ever asked. Just like no one ever noticed that there was no college called Connecticut State. I'd assumed there was, or had seen Eastern Connecticut State or Central Connecticut State, and mixed the whole thing up. I had never met anyone named Caroline before. She lived in Bethany because it was the other city I knew in Connecticut the one my aunt and uncle lived in, although I'd never been there. She wore glasses because I'd always wanted to date a girl who wore glasses. This all might seem pathological deception or delusion, but I had a good reason. I needed Thanksgiving off. I was working at my second video store as an assistant manager. My first video store had been, even accounting for the rough last month or two there, a great job where I made so many of the friends I still hold dear today. I had fun almost every day I worked, until a romance gone sour made it advantageous for me to leave. I had intended to change industries, maybe become a waiter, but a new competing video store called me out of the blue and offered me a job managing one of their new stores. I didn't want to be the manager, so I accepted a position as assistant manager because I knew making a manager's salary at the age of 20 would be a kind of tar baby. I'd never get unstuck from the job if I was making $30,000 plus benefits, and I knew I would want to get unstuck from working at a video store sooner rather than later. The one downside of not being manager is that somebody else has to be. And my second video store had a manager who was in every possible aspect terrible. Her name was Donna. She was moody and petty and not actually very good at being able to manage anything. She had to have emergency surgery shortly before the grand opening of the store. And so I was the de facto manager for the first two weeks. They were without question the two smoothest weeks of operation the store had while she was manager. As soon as she came back, the place fell apart. I'm pretty sure she hated me. In part, this might be because she knew what I was able to do her job. She might have even known I had initially been offered her position. Maybe she felt threatened by me, worried I might take her job away from her. I was also young and cocky and fairly certain I was the smartest person in any room I walked into, and probably not shy about letting people know that was how I felt. It could have been a lot of things. 
So everything I did was given extra scrutiny. If I skipped shaving, I would get spoken to. If I spent too much time talking to a customer at the register, she would come out from her office and assign me some cleaning task out back. She didn't like the ties I wore. She felt I was too flirty with girls who came in. I was, probably without question, her least favorite employee. I ended up working there for only about 10 weeks. I quit in early December, the only job I ever walked out on, locking up the store and throwing my key into the video return slot. That's how awful it was. But during those 10 weeks was Thanksgiving, at time my favorite holiday, and Donna scheduled me to work open to close. I volunteered to work Christmas Day instead, just as I had done at my first video store, in order to have Thanksgiving off. Donna said she needed me for Thanksgiving. So I told her about Caroline. She lived in Connecticut because it was far enough away that I needed the whole day for travel. No coming in to work after dinner, or opening the store and then stopping afterwards for dessert. It was close enough that I could be back to open the day after Thanksgiving, something I offered Donna. Her mother being a superintendent was a detail that was important because the fact that I wanted to be a teacher and needed to impress her helped explain why it had been so catastrophic if I was unable to attend her Thanksgiving dinner at the last minute. It, only, it was only a decade and a half later that it occurs to me how adroit I was at lying. It's pretty worrying, actually. I was so good and didn't even realize it. The bits about Caroline's father and sister added nothing concrete to the description, but gave a nice shape to the story. I told Don about Caroline, that I told everybody else I worked with as well, in an attempt to build up sympathy. I was really the only young person employed there, at least the only consistent one, so my story of long-distance love, separated by state lines, perhaps resonated with the middle-aged marrieds I worked with. It ultimately worked. I got Thanksgiving off. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you, Caroline's mom. Within a few months of leaving the second video store, I began working as a substitute teacher. Every morning the phone rang and asked me if I was available. I just had to say yes or no. I needed no elaborate ruse. And while some of the students, middle schoolers, punky 7th and 8th graders would ask me if I had a girlfriend, I didn't have to answer them. So Caroline and I drifted apart. That summer I got work at a local community college as a math tutor. I was trained by two older tutors. The first was a slovenly bearded ginger with an accent of indeterminate origin, who was probably the finest tutor I've ever seen. The second was a slick, cologne hustler who sold vacuum cleaners as his main job. He was maybe late 30s, bloated and tired, but you could see he had once been handsome. The first tutor gave me practical advice that I often still find myself using. The second one offered this. I was gonna get laid. When he was my age, when he had first started tutoring, girls couldn't keep their hands off of him. He was married now, with a young kid at home, but he told me those facts with the same tone a retired pitcher mentions his rotor hair cuff. The thing was, he was almost right. I worked in the campus tutoring center, where you could either walk in or you could schedule an appointment in advance. Within the first couple of weeks, my walk-in availability had shrunk to virtually zero. Almost my entire shift was scheduled appointments, most with girls. I've been working as a tutor for 15 years now, so I allow that much of it might have been that perhaps I was pretty good. People who came to me for help ended up by and large doing better on their next exam. One of my regulars was an, was an old elderly woman, a grandmother, and she seemed more interested in setting me up with one of the other young tutors, a single mother who found me aggregating to no end. I think I could safely rule her out. Others I wasn't so sure. One asked me out, so that's a definite. Another invited me to the restaurant where she tended bar and gave me a Christmas present and told me about how she was planning on leaving her boyfriend. 
I'll put her in the strong maybe category. There's another who had only one mode. Full tilt crazy flirt. The air around her swam with pheromones. But there was another young tutor named Walter who would shake his head slowly, almost angrily when she would flit to and from my table. Let's call that one a close call. And then there was Angela. It seems cruel to even try to describe her. As a storyteller, I want to paint a picture of this girl as she exists in my memory. But she clearly had both physical and cognitive difficulties. I imagine that life was very difficult for her, and I wouldn't want any careless words to add to that difficulty, or in any way trivialize it. She certainly made her presence known upon her daily entrance into the tutoring center. Her backpack was bulging with her textbooks and notebooks and pencil boxes and calculators, and it rattled and shook loudly as she lumbered in through the entrance. Her back was perpetually hunched, and this somehow only added to the din, as her pack seemed almost always about to topple forward over her head. Perhaps it was just the season, but she also suffered from near-constant respiratory distress. Her breathing was often the loudest thing in any room she was in. Her black hair hung before her face, and only when she got close to you did she push it aside. She was not beautiful. I do not mean this glibly or viciously. I feel I cannot describe her without telling you this. She was not beautiful. Her resting face looked angry, which probably did not help, but, in fairness, wouldn't you be angry? Perhaps the most notable thing about Angela was when she got angry or frustrated or upset, she would honk. Like a large waterfowl guarding her goslings, she would arch up her shoulders, swing her hair back in front of her face, and make a honking noise. She struggled with her remedial math course, really struggled. And while working with a tutor, she would often get angry or frustrated or upset. If there was a fraction in the problem, she would honk. If asked to solve for a variable, she would honk. If you tried to explain it to her, and she didn't understand, and then you repeated her explanation, she would shout, I don't understand, and she would honk. Probably not surprisingly, none of the tutors liked working with Angela. She was often brusque, bordering on rude, even on her best days, and there were far too few of them. So given that I was new, given that I worked a lot of hours, and given that I was so confident and secure in my own greatness and indefatigability, I became Angela's only tutor. Before I make it seem like there were no positive qualities I possessed that made me the only tutor able to work with her, I should add that I was very, very patient. I have been tutoring a long time, and tutor is my profession now as an adult. And even beyond subject matter knowledge, I still tell people the most valuable skill one needs to be a pa- tutor is patience. And I was very, very patient with Angela. It probably helped that the rest of my tutoring schedule was filled with cute girls who simply found me charming and witty. If I spent five hours a day in that tutoring center and 30 minutes had to be spent with Angela, it seemed like such an insignificant burden to be almost non-existent. And I'll be honest, I grew to really enjoy working with her. Sure, she would clear her sinuses loudly every few minutes. She would speak in a loud and shrill voice for even the most plain and simple statements. She would get exasperated with me and cover her face and honk. But I gave her a moment, waited, and then asked her gently if she needed me to try and explain it a different way. And she would calm herself, say okay, and I would try again. Occasionally, I got her to smile. She made modest improvements in her math work, perhaps not enough to bring her grade up dramatically, but enough that her professor noticed and asked after me, wanting to know how I'd gotten through to her. I had to confess I didn't know. In some ways, I wasn't as smart as I thought I was.
One day, right before the Thanksgiving holiday, the center was bustling. At the table next to mine, a tutor named Mary, who always wore Mickey Mouse sweatshirts, was working with the girl I, I normally worked with, the one who Walter had warned me off of, the one who oozed pheromones. I, as always, was working with Angela. Pheromone kept swinging around in her chair to talk to me. Her perfume was strong, her face sparkled with applied glitter. Her questions were both inane and vaguely leading. I tried to be short and blunt with her. I was supposed to be working with Angela, after all. And she always got very angry if I interrupted while I was working with her. But Pheromone wouldn't let up. And Mary, the woman tutoring her, didn't seem very interested in trying to regain her attention. Do you have any plans for Thanksgiving? She asked me. I saw my opening. Oh, I'm going to my girlfriend's parents' house. It's in Connecticut, I explained. I also said her name was Bethany, mixing up the details of my old ruse. I could see Pheromone's interest in me dissipate, even through all the glitter. She might have told me where she was going, but the message had been received, and she eventually returned to learning about factoring quadratic equations. I turned back to my table in time to see Angela push the hair from her face. It didn't look angry. I had seen her smile a handful of times, but I had never seen this look before. She looked like someone had shot her. You, you, she stammered, you have a girlfriend? I had just said I did. There was no denying it. Before the curtain of her hair fell back over her face, I could see the tears well up in her eyes. And even if I hadn't, even if she had been more quickly to push the bangs in front of her face, she wouldn't be able to hide it. Racking sobs shook, shook from her body, and she wailed, just animal wailing. There was no hiding it, no matter how dark her hair, how quickly she was able to push it in front of her face. I just decimated the poor girl's heart. And in between the wails and the sobs, between the deep breaths and the clearing of the sinuses, would be the honk. This time sad mournful. I didn't know what to say. I think I tried to say I was sorry, but she quickly gathered up her belongings and quickly shambled out of the room. She did return after the Thanksgiving break, and I did work with her until the end of the semester, but I never saw her smile again. I rarely even saw her face hidden behind her hair. She didn't pass her final. I left the tutoring center after that semester, returned to work as a substitute teacher. A girl I had met working at the center, a fellow tutor named Katie, became something in my life that could be considered a girlfriend, something romantic at least, something that would explain my unavailability as a boyfriend or for holidays. For the next few years at least, I would not need an imaginary girlfriend. We would often be seen together around town by my students, and it became suddenly a less interesting question to ask about. Eventually Katie moved away, and despite trying the long-distance relationship I had so easily maintained with Caroline all those years earlier, we found actual distance between actual people more difficult to navigate than one would imagine. I moved to teaching at the high school and took on the additional role of yearbook advisor and school photographer. I especially enjoyed shooting the field hockey games, although one of the seniors, only seven years my junior, seemed to take great interest in my after-school activities. Whether her flirting was genuine or just a way to amuse herself, it was disconcerting all the same. She kept asking me when I was going to take her out. I contemplated bringing Caroline out of retirement. But even though she was never a real person, I needed to break up with her nonetheless. She had caused real heartache, and I didn't want to have her around. Luckily, I was finally able to convince the girl who would become my wife to first become my girlfriend, and then to move in with me. My apartment was directly across the street from the school, and had left no doubt. Years later, I left teaching and returned to tutoring. I had married my wife and was starting a family and working as a tutor allowed me the flexibility to stay home with our children. 
In the fall before our daughter was born, I was approached by a family recently moved to the area from Bridgeport, looking for a tutor from their homeschooled son. It was a good opportunity to make extra money before the baby was due. There was an added benefit of the homeschool work allowing us to work at our own pace. I worked hard to convince the boy that if we really hustled, we'd get the majority of the work done by the spring, giving him an extra long summer vacation and allowing me to be home more with my new daughter. But the kid was a king procrastinator and would always try and derail the sessions by asking questions by telling me about stories about his life before we moved to Massachusetts. There are parts of Bridgeport that are so bad they'll take an engine out of a moving car, he told me. I replied that was impossible and stupid and needed to get back to work, but he was determined. It was true, he heard it. Then he asked me if I'd ever even been to Connecticut. I had to admit that I never had. Thanks as always to Joel McKenna, as well as Amy Reichenbach and Daryl Morey. Episodes of Mnemonic can be found in mnemonicpodcast.tumblr.com, mnemonicpodcast.soundcloud.com, and also in the iTunes store. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Have a great night. Mm-hmm.